Well, I think most of you know that in a couple of weeks, um, Adam and I and Kelly and a number of uh, people from our church will have the privilege of going to New Zealand to serve at the annual impact conference that's put on by Riverbend Bible Church there in the Hastings, Napier, um, Haverlock North area in New Zealand. If you're familiar with that, it's on the North Island, and it's a very significant church uh, in the country of New Zealand. And this conference really has a great impact, uh, that's the name, uh, has a great impact in the entire country. And they draw really from both the North and South Islands, um, church members, pastors. Uh, it's really just an exciting conference. Usually they have about 600, 700 people there that are just hungry for the Word of God. And it's always, uh, it's been a, just, a, the last time we went was just a great joy and an honor and a privilege to go. And so... Um, the, this year's theme is the church, uh, and they're calling it a dynamic body. And so they've asked us to come and, and uh, speak on the purposes and the priorities and the practices of the church. And so something that I'm very excited to, to, to talk about, to preach on. And so uh, I'm going to have the opportunity to do about five messages. Kelly's going to do three seminars for the women in breakout sessions. Adam's going to do the breakout sessions for the youth, and then those folks from our church are going to be there serving behind the scenes, setting up, tearing down, serving food, uh, just in, in any possible way they can serve the, the, the attendees of this conference. So uh, we would appreciate your prayers for that as we, uh, as we head out in a couple weeks. But uh, over the next uh, few opportunities I have to preach here, I, I thought it would be wise to, to really get my act together, if you will. And uh, to be thinking through some of the texts that they've asked me to teach on uh, that are directly related to the church. And these are passages that uh, we've gone over before as a church, but uh, they're so critical that I don't think you can ever hear them enough. And so hopefully you will not be uh, bored out of your mind tonight going through things that we've uh, done before, but... Uh, I trust that you'll be stirred up by way of reminder, even as I've been uh, in rethinking uh, some of these texts. And uh, the, the text that I want to look at with you tonight is what I consider to be the, the, the best um, text in all of the New Testament regarding the purpose of the church, why the church exists. And this is going to be the opening text that I preach uh, on the opening night of the, of the conference and it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So take your Bibles and turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Father, we thank you for this text and how foundational it is, how fundamental it is to our understanding of your church, your household. Uh, Lord, what we're to be and what we're to do. What are the essentials of uh, what we're all about here as a church and so I pray that as we go through these verses tonight, that you would, uh, again, stir us up by way of reminder of what we're all about here as a church. 
Lord, that we would live out this text, Lord, as a, as a group, as a corporate body, but also as individuals as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm curious, how many of you grew up in the church? In other words, you've been in the church pretty much your entire life, okay? That's the majority of you are raising your hands. That would be true of me. I've been going to church literally since I was born. Uh, I can't remember a time in my life where uh, Sunday morning wasn't about church. And uh, I've got a lot of vivid memories of my times at church growing up. From my very first Christmas pageant as a little child, my mom trained me, make sure you say your line loud so that everyone in the church can hear it. Well, she didn't realize that they would have a microphone. And so here was the microphone being passed down to all of us children. And when, it, when I got to me, I did exactly what my mom, my mom said. I said it as loud as I could possibly say it. And I screamed into the microphone and blew out half of the people's eardrums when I yelled, Jesus is the king. That was my one line uh, in the Christmas pageant. I remember singing my first and last solo in the children's choir, something about a little ball of white string, and I flew a kite, and it was very embarrassing. Um, never did that again. I remember throwing up in my dad's hat because I couldn't make it to the bathroom in time. Um, I remember putting gum on the pastor's chair during catechism class. Yeah, I was uh, responsible for driving at least one Sunday school teacher into early retirement. Um, but uh, probably the thing I remember most is just OD and on all the, the, uh, the, the red punch and cookies at all the potlucks. You know, mom and dad were off talking to people, and I was just chowing down, man. It was like a food fest. You know, I was eating all these sugar cookies and all this, you know, it's always, it was always red punch, right? Red Kool-Aid or something at these potluck suppers, and I'd be bouncing off the walls, you know, uh, getting loaded up with sugar. Well, one thing I found out, at an early age, was that there was a right way and a wrong way to act at church. In fact, I still have scars on my leg to prove it where my mother would dig her long nails into my leg whenever I would squirm or talk. She would just very discreetly, you'd never know, anybody else, nobody else would know because she would just sit there like that and she would just take her hand over on my leg and go, and I'd be like, as she dug her nails. But needless to say, I learned how to behave myself at church. And I think knowing how to behave yourself at church really comes down to knowing what the church is for and why you're there in the first place. And someone has written very profoundly, they said, quote, a high proportion of people who go to church today have forgotten what it is all for. Week by week, they attend services in a special building and go through particular time-honored routines, but they give little thought to the purpose of what they're doing. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ but the church today seems more like a ragged Cinderella. The church needs to reaffirm the non-negotiable, essential elements that God designed for it to be committed to. And I don't know of any other verse in the Scripture that explains the essential elements of a church more simply and succinctly than 1 Timothy 3.15. This verse was addressed, obviously, to Timothy, who was overseeing the local church that Paul had planted in the city of Ephesus, the church was having some, some problems, and Paul had left Timothy to set things uh, in order, left him there. And uh, Paul's plan was to come back and visit Timothy as quickly as possible, but he wasn't sure uh, when, if or when he would make it back there. And so he sent Timothy this letter with some important instructions 
that just couldn't wait. And so this letter, 1 Timothy, along with his second letter to Timothy and his, also his letter to Titus, I think are the, the best instruction manual for the church that has ever been written. They're, they're called the pastoral epistles. And there's been thousands of books and articles written about the church. Countless uh, conferences and seminars have been given on how to develop and run a church. But none of them even begin to compare with the simplicity and the clarity of what is contained in the pastoral epistles because they basically explain the, the basic principles and practices that God's people should follow when they gather together, how they should behave, if you will, in God's house. And I think this verse, verse 15, summarizes the entire theme of the pastoral epistles. Notice it says, but in the case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That word conduct yourself is the word anastrophe in the Greek, which means behavior or lifestyle. So this is, I'm writing this so you know how to behave yourself in the household of God. And, and notice, Paul wasn't just telling Timothy how he should behave as a pastor, but how the entire church in Ephesus was supposed to behave. In other words, this is how a local assembly of believers is to act. Notice he calls the church, initially, the household of God. Literally, the house of God, the building, the dwelling place. And I don't know if you're like me, when I think of God's house, right, the term God's house, the picture comes to my mind of an old deacon, right, catching some little kid running down the hall, and he says, hey, young man, don't run in God's house. In other words, they liken the building, right, to be God's house. But what we need to understand is that when the Bible talks about God's house, it's not referring to the building that the church meets in, but it's talking about the believers, right, in whom God's Spirit dwells. And so we as the body of Christ are the sanctuary, if you will, of God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple, but in the New Testament, God dwells in the church. He dwells in the body of Christ. Listen to uh, some references to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul said, Do you not know that you are a temple or a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's referring to the church at large. You are the temple of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So again, all this reference to God's household, God's building, it's not the actual bricks and mortar, right? It's the people, the body of Christ. In fact, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul used that word household to refer to a family and the qualifications of elders. In verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well. Verse 5, 
If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children of their own households. So what's implied here is that we as believers are part of God's family. God is our father, we are his children, and other Christians are our brothers and sisters. In fact, in chapter 5, Paul told Timothy to not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. And so the, the, the concept is that we're all a, a big family, right? Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, sons and daughters. And so God's family is made up of those who, by faith, have received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. John 1.12, but as many as received Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become, what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So all of us were born into a family, right? You were born into a family, I was born into a family. But if we want to be part of God's family, we need to be born again. We need to be born spiritually, like talks about in John chapter 3. And a lot of people think that all it takes to be a part of God's family is to what? Go to church. That's right. Just because a person is a member of the Baptist church or they're a member of the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church or even a Bible church, that doesn't automatically make you a member of God's family, a member of the church. I mean, just because you're here tonight doesn't necessarily mean that you are a Christian. You, you may have grown up in the church like I did. You've been going to church your entire life. That doesn't make you or anyone else a Christian. And you know, we live in the South here, right? Where, where it seems like everyone goes to church and everyone considers themselves a Christian. And so I often ask people to tell me when they become a Christian. And oftentimes what I get as a response is, well, I go to this church. I said, I didn't ask you what church you went to. I want to know when you became a Christian. Well, I was baptized. I didn't ask you when you got baptized. I want to know when you became a Christian. And sometimes I'll ask more specifically, well, tell me when you were born again. And sometimes I get that deer in the headlight look, right? Um, and very few people have that, a really clear answer. How about you? Do you have a clear answer? If I were to ask you, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Are you absolutely sure that when you die, God is going to welcome you into his kingdom as one of his children? I can't think of a, of a greater, tragedy, greater tragedy than for someone to go through life singing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, right? Only to find out that they weren't. And so being a part of God's family is an unspeakable privilege, but it also carries with it a huge responsibility. We must uphold God's reputation, right? As, as individual members of God's family, God dwells in us. And whenever we assemble together corporately for worship and for fellowship, God dwells among us. And so consequently, we must maintain the testimony of God, most importantly, His honor and His word. We need to conduct ourselves 
or behave ourselves, as Paul says, in such a way that God is honored and His Word is held high for all to see. And so Paul goes on to elaborate here on the household of God. And notice he used two descriptive phrases that I think simply and yet profoundly explain the true nature of the church. Notice he says, he says that you should know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. And here they are, which is, what I'm talking about here is the church of the living God. That's the first descriptive phrase. And the second phrase is the pillar and support of the truth. And I would submit to you that, that everything that the church is to be and do is summarized in these two phrases. The church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. These two phrases define the primary functions of the church. You say, what are they? Well, number one, we have a sacred duty to honor the living God and secondly, to honor or hold up His living word. This is the mission of the church in capsule form. This is why the church exists. And so basically, there are two fundamental functions of the church here. Number one, to honor God's worth. We could say it that way, to honor God's worth. And then secondly, to hold up God's word. Let's look at these two functions. First of all, we need to honor God's worth. Notice he says, he calls this household of God the church of the living God. The church, that's the word, of course, ekklesia, right, in the Greek. The called out ones, it's used over a hundred times in the New Testament to refer, to refer to the group of believers who have been called out by God as his own to worship him and to, to witness for him. And there's a lot of confusion about the word church today. We ask people, well, what church do you go to? And we're actually thinking about like, well, I go to the Lutheran church, or I go to the Methodist church, or I go to the Baptist church, or the Bible church. Or how about this? Where is your church located? We're looking for an address, right? A physical address. Or how about this? I've had people walk into our church and go, wow, what a pretty church. Again, referencing the, the four walls, the, the brick, the stucco. And the, the thing we have to remember is the church isn't a physical location or a material facility. It's a spiritual assembly of people who are dedicated to honoring and glorifying God with their lives. That's one of the things that I loved about when we first planted Lakeside Bible Church. We didn't have a building. And so nobody could talk about our church building. Whenever you talked about the church, the church was us. It was the body of Christ. And, and we need to remember the building, this building is not the church, we're the church. And the steel and the brick and the stucco, it's, it's simply a place where we can worship and where we can fellowship and be equipped to serve the Lord together. So he calls it the church, but he goes on, he calls it the church of the living God. So whose church is it? God's church. Right? The church belongs to God, not me, not you. Right? It belongs to God. The Father designed it, the Son purchased it, the Spirit sealed it and empowers it, and therefore we belong to Him, and that gives Him every right to tell us how we should behave as a church. It's His church. And I think the first thing we should understand when it comes to behaving in church is we should behave reverently towards Him. 
That phrase, the living God, is used all over Scripture to describe God as a holy and awesome God who deserves to be worshipped with reverence and awe. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26, the Israelites were standing trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai after they received the Ten Commandments. And this is what they said, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? In other words, there's nobody that has heard the voice of the living God and lived. And so Israel's consciousness that, that God lived among them profoundly affected their community life. I think it's kind of comical, but uh, very serious at the same time. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it talks about how the fact that God dwelled among them determined where they went to the bathroom. Literally. God says, don't you go to the bathroom in the, t- in, 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 in the camp. You, you take your little shovel and you go outside the camp so God won't see you. Now, obviously, we know God can see us everywhere we go, but the point was there was a holiness about the camp, and there was to be nothing of defilement there. God was not to see anything indecent. Listen to some of the ways that this phrase, the living God, is used in the Psalms. Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God, my my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, 1. How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, the writer says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of who? the living God. And so when Paul used the term, the church of the living God, he was saying that the church is a place where God is to be worshipped with fear and with reverence. And so when we come together as a church, we need to pursue Him and long for intimacy with Him, and we need to praise and adore Him and seek to honor and glorify Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. And I love how John Piper says it in his book, God's Passion for His Glory. He says, when we come to worship on Sunday morning, we ought to come hungry for God. God is mightily honored when people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. Nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. Piper goes on, he says, this conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. They're not confused about why they're there to worship. They do not view songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as means of getting to God or God getting to them for more of his fullness, no matter how painful that may be for the sinners in the short run. Nothing keeps God at the center of worship like the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him and the conviction that the trembling pursuit of that satisfaction is why we're together. 
That's profound. And unfortunately, this is not what you experience when you walk into a lot of churches today. There's not this, this trembling pursuit of the living God. And I think there's typically one of two extremes, right? You walk into some churches and it's like walking into a morgue. You ever been to a church like that, right? Um, they're cold, they're dark. People are kind of just going through the motions, standing up, sitting down, praying the prayer. They're, they're stuck in some old stuffy tradition of past generations. And they're just content to keep doing the, the things that they've always done, even though it's become irrelevant to everyone there and to anyone who visits. And I think that's why a lot of people are turned off today by traditional denominational type churches. There's a reason why we're seeing this wave of, of, of churches being planted all over the place in, 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 in just an amazing rate. Churches popping up all over the place. That's one extreme is the morgue. The other extreme is you walk into some churches and it's like walking into a mall. You ever been to one of those churches? Right? They're warm. They're bright. People are hanging out, sipping lattes, cappuccinos, right? There's food courts. There's workout facilities. There's bowling alleys. There's fountains. There's waterfalls. There's kids' play areas that are better than any, you know, McDonald playland you've ever been to, right? And basically, it's church casual, where people are encouraged just to come as they are, and the main goal is to project this, this comfortable, non-threatening atmosphere where people can come hang out with their friends. There's no pews, no pulpits, no old-fashioned hymns, no long sermons, lots of music, video, drama, short, positive pep talks. It's all about being user-friendly, right? And I think that's why so many people are attracted to, to what we would call a seeker-type uh, church, because they're just giving people exactly what they want. Because people today want a church to be relaxed, non-confrontive. Uh, non they want it to be an entertaining experience that makes them feel good about themselves when they leave. But church isn't a place for people to be entertained, but a place where God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The problem with the church today is we've confused who the real seeker is. We need to be sensitive to the fact that God is the seeker. God is seeking true worshipers who desire to praise Him and adore Him and know Him more intimately. And the problem with the whole seeker movement is that it focuses on what people want rather than what God wants. It's man-centered rather than God-centered. And listen, beloved, the church doesn't exist for us. The church exists for God. This is God's house, not a, not a coffee house. And if you're looking for a place to hang out in a casual, comfortable environment, that's what Starbucks is for, right? Nothing wrong with that. If you want a non-threatening atmosphere, go to the mall. That's what, that's what you do at the mall, comfortable, non-threatening atmosphere. Just kind of meander through and do some window shopping, right? But when you come to church, we need to realize that we're coming into the presence of a holy God, and frankly, that is not a warm, casual, non-threatening environment. That can be very threatening. 
I mean, consider Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter 5. After they died, after God killed them, the Spirit of God killed them for lying, it says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard about it. And the early church wasn't very user-friendly or seeker-sensitive, okay? Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? When, when an unbeliever walks into these doors, we would want them to feel warmly welcomed, would we not? And loved and cared for. But they shouldn't feel comfortable and at home. They should feel out of place. They should feel convicted and think, of, think to themselves, this is weird. I've never been around people like this. I've never experienced anything like this. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, when an unbeliever is convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. I mean, that's how God designed the church to reach unbelievers. The best way to reach the lost in our community is to be a group of people who don't just mindlessly and emotionlessly follow strict traditions and perform meaningless rituals, nor should we be a group of people who, who pragmatically and irreverently dumb down the church and, and try to attract the lost with all sorts of marketing techniques and and entertain them with a bunch of music and media. We need a group of people who come together and reverently worship and honor the living God so people have this overwhelming experience or sense when they walk in here that they're in the presence of the living God. And so we come together as a church to honor God's worth. But that's not all. There's a second fundamental function that we as a church must fulfill particularly if we want to reach unbelievers, and that is to hold up God's word. We want to honor God's worth, but we also want to hold up God's word. Notice the second phrase now. He says, I write that you would know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then here's the second phrase, the pillar and support of the truth. What's the point of a pillar? To hold something up, right? To keep it from falling. And so the imagery that Paul used here may have been a reference to the temple of, uh, of the goddess Diana that stood there in the city of Ephesus where, where this church was located. The temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of the unique features of this structure was uh, 127 gold-plated pillars that supported the roof. And so when he said pillar, I would imagine the first thing that came in those, the minds of those Ephesians was all those pillars at the temple of Diana. And so he says that the church is the pillar and the support, literally the ground of the truth. This is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. It refers to the foundation on which a building rests. And I think this is important to note here that Paul said the church is the support of the truth not the source of the truth. And if you have any background in Catholicism, you know that the Vatican councils and the Catholic Church will say, claim to be the source of truth. But they're not. God is the source of truth, and this is the source of truth. 
right? Not the church. We're here to support the truth. So the church has the responsibility of proclaiming the truth and protecting the truth that God has already revealed to us once and for all in the scriptures. We're not to invent the truth. We're not to come up with the truth. We're simply to support the truth. It's not our job to come up with the message, but to faithfully deliver it to those who need to hear it. It's like the mailman. His job is not to write the letters, right, and then hand, drop them off. His job is just to take them from the, mailbox to the, from the post office to the mailbox, right? Or a waiter. You know, the waiter just takes the food. His job is to take the, from the food from the kitchen to the table and not mess it up in the process. That's our job, the pillar and support of the truth. You say, what is the truth? Well, it's simply the content of the Christian faith as recorded in the Scriptures. This is the truth right here that we're supposed to support. And I think this truth is summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice the next verse, verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who is that a reference to? Jesus Christ. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the essential truth that the church must uphold and proclaim and protect. And so we know Paul was very passionate about the truth of God's word. He made sure that Timothy understood his responsibility as a pastor to uphold the truth. And over and over and over again, he emphasized the the pastoral priority of proclaiming and protecting the word of God. Notice in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Retain the, stand, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Chapter 3, verse 15. From childhood you've known the sacred writing which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the, what, truth and will turn aside to myths. One commentator said this in the pastoral epistles. He said, quote, it is the solemn responsibility of every church to solidly, immovably, and unshakably uphold the truth of God's word. The church does not invent the truth and alters it only at the cost of judgment. It is to support and safeguard it. It is the sacred saving treasure given to sinners for their forgiveness and to believers for their sanctification and edification that they might live for the glory of God. The church has the stewardship of Scripture. 
the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to secondary place, or abandon biblical truth destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. Wow. That's important for us to hear because we live in that day of the itching ear, don't we? Where people want to have their ears tickled. We live in a day where truth has fallen in the streets, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, 14. Few in our world acknowledge any sort of absolute truth. And so therefore, there's no standard of right and wrong. If there's no absolute truth, right, a trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live, well, then there's no right and wrong. And if there's no right and wrong, you can go and do whatever you want. And so everyone's encouraged these days to do what is right in their, what? Their own eyes. And anyone who stands up for the truth is considered unloving or judgmental or intolerant, right? Why? Because people don't want to hear the truth. They ignore the truth. They suppress the truth. They misrepresent the truth, they deny the truth, or they just plain reject the truth. And so that's all the more reason why we must hold up what God has said in His Word. And so when the world says that abortion is a woman's choice, we say no, it's murder. Because life starts at the moment of conception. When the world says that homosexuality is hereditary, It's simply an alternative lifestyle. We stand up and say, no. God says it's a sinful lifestyle that perverts the natural affection that he created between a man and a woman. When the world says same-sex marriages should be protected under the law, we stand up and we say, no. God says it's a violation of his design for marriage. And so... Practically, that's one way we can stand up for the truth, we can support the truth, we can be a pillar for the truth. However, what's worse is that we live in a day where the truth is not just being attacked by the world, it's also being attacked by the church. And we live in those times about which Paul warned when Christians would fall away from the truth. And so many churches are compromising the truth and abandoning it altogether. And so we need to stand strong against the contemporary trends in the church that really seek to undermine the truth of God's Word, like the ordination of women, for example, which alters the God-ordained roles of men and women in the home and in the church. Or what we know today as the prosperity gospel, right? That Jesus died to make you wealthy. He died to make you healthy, which is a a distortion of the message of the gospel. God died to make you holy, Or Christian psychology, where there's this integration of psychological theories and therapies with biblical principles, and it denies the sufficiency of God's Word. Or even the charismatic movement, which adds to God's completed revelation, because God told me this, and I had a dream, or I had a vision, and and there's an extra source of revelation or communication from God than, than the Scriptures alone. How about the gender-inclusive Bible? Have you heard of that one? It's becoming more and more popular where we're not going to have God, you know, we don't want to offend the women in the world, so we're not going to have God be male. He's going to be kind of this unisex uh, being, right? And so we're going to emasculate the, the scriptures and, 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 and just include both him and her 
um, in references to God and, and, and other key passages, which compromises the, the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God. And we've already talked about pragmatism in the church, where the church is, is being marketed, right? It waters down the truth to make it palatable to unbelievers, and there's often a very shallow uh, topical approach when it comes to teaching the Bible that focuses on giving people helpful tips for life, uh, for a better life, rather than, than, than strong, deep, systematic instruction in God's Word. And so Paul's point here is that as the, as the truth crumbles all around us, we need to stand strong and tall for the truth of God's Word like a lone pillar surrounded by all this rubble. Right? There's just, you ever been to a, a historic site and there's just one pillar that, that was remained standing, right? That needs to be the church. You say, practically, how, how do we do this? What, what does it look like? How, how do we uphold the truth of God's word? Well, as a pastor, I think it really is simple, as simple as being faithful to preach the word, right? Not compromise the word. To know that I don't have anything to say to you or anyone else than what God has already said. And there's nothing more relevant that you need to hear, right, than what God has said. And so I don't need to make up stuff or somehow package Scripture in some cool, relevant way, right, to get you to, to like it, right? The Bible's relevant, period, whether you realize that or not. How about for you as a as a believer, a church member, a church attender, how, how can you practically uphold the Word of God? One of the books that they're going to be giving out at the conference in New Zealand is a, a great book by Donald Whitney called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. It's a great resource. I know a number of you have probably read Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which was his, his first book, but then he wrote a second book called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, and he just talks about all the different aspects of the local church. They're going to be giving this book away as, as a conference gift. And so listen to what he says. Donald Whitney says in a chapter about why listen to preaching in the church. And I think this is a very practical way that you can uphold the Word of God. He says, in defiance of the world's wisdom that says no one wants to come to church and hear sermons, in defiance of the church marketing strategy that questions the value of traditional preaching and would rather replace it with something more visually stimulating, you should attend a church where you can consistently hear biblical preaching. That's how you uphold the truth of God's Word. You need to avoid a church where the preaching does not clearly come from the Bible. Sometimes the preacher announces a text but never really comes back to it and or makes only passing references to any other verses from the Bible. The kind of church you want to be a part of is one where when the Bible is read at the beginning of the sermon, you can be confident that, that what follows will be built on it. God made our hearts, and only He knows what we need most. And He made our hearts for the Word of God. Nothing nourishes us like His message. And whether or not you recognize it, nothing else in worship can satisfy as what God says to us. Your soul will only be fed from God's word. Without it, you will be undernourished and suffer from spiritual starvation. Keep your distance from a church that minimizes preaching 
or substitutes other things for it. Whenever a church allows anything else, drama, ceremony, music, video, concert, pageant, dance, to compromise the primacy of the message preached, it's a sign that it has lost confidence in the preaching of God's word. You don't need a church like this, regardless of how good its other programs are or how many friends you have there or how well your children like it. Remember that it is God's word that changes hearts and lives, not social activities. Make sure your family will consistently hear what will save them and build them up. That's practically how you can uphold the word of God. Um, there's that expression, right, that we, 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 we vote with our uh, attendance or lack thereof, right? right? You, you show what you're committed to by where you attend and what you support. I think the best way that we can uphold the word of God is just by living it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I will have no reason or excuse me, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. See, when we live out the living word, then God is honored and his word is held high. And when you think about it, honoring God's worth and, and holding up God's word, they're really one and the same. They go hand in hand. They're like two sides of the same coin. I'll never forget when I graduated from seminary, they gave all of us seniors the opportunity to share a testimony of how our life had been impacted by our four years, three years, however many years it took us to get through seminary. And um, I remember trying to just simplify and capsulize what the impact of the Master Seminary had on my life. And it really all came down to having a high view of God and high view of His Word. That's, that's what it comes down to. That's what I learned in seminary. Have a high view of God and have a high view of His Word. And it was always my prayer and it was always my passion to be a part of a church that had a high view of God and a high view of His Word. And to be able to shepherd people, right, who have a high view of God and a high view of his word, and to be a pastor who has a high view of God and a high view of his word, and to help people uh, who are lost and dying in a community realize that they need to have a high view of God and a high view of God's word. And that's the essence of the church. And I think as we stay committed to honoring God and, and holding up his word, we will be the kind of church that God wants us to be. And we will be blessed by him as a result. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you for how simple it makes um, the church. Uh, Lord, we know that apart from you and your word that we are nothing. And we just thank you for the privilege that you've given us to, to be a part of this, this great body. The body of Christ. Lord, forgive us when we fail to uh, honor your worth 
Forgive us when we fail to hold up your word. I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would empower us, Lord, that you would be gracious to us, Lord, that we would learn how to do a better job of honoring you and and holding up your word as individuals, Lord, and as a church. And Lord, as we do that, Lord, we know that that's the means that you've ordained for lost people to come to know Christ as we live out your word in this community and they see a difference in our lives, Lord, that they would want to know what is the reason for that difference. And then, Lord, maybe we can invite them here and they would walk in and sense that they are in the presence of the living God and it would transform their life. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.